Amen. It was beautiful. We are in, uh, as you heard, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. And I'm very thankful for a church that doesn't pick and choose the text that we study because this would not be a text that I think we would naturally gravitate to. This is a very difficult text. It's difficult for a number of reasons. One is that it's difficult technically. In the Hebrew, there are some words that, uh, based on interchange or wordplay, where you place them, it changes the translation of the text. And so some have said verses 15 and 16 are actually some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate. Uh, So it's difficult for technical reasons, but it's also difficult for pastoral reasons. It's difficult for personal reasons. There's not a person in this room that has not been touched or affected by betrayal or adultery or divorce. Not including myself. There's not been a person in here that has not been affected by or touched by that. And it's a extremely personal. And Malachi, we were talking about it downstairs just before the service, uh, he put his foot on the gas and he has not let up. And this text is very, very difficult and he's not going to back away from calling Israel to repentance. And that's the thrust of this text this morning as we look at it. And Malachi is going to confront these particular issues that we just mentioned just to give you a little bit more context, a little bit of context, Malachi has moved from chapter 1, verse 6 down to 2, 9. We looked at those the last two weeks in addressing spiritual leaders. And now he is moving to the people themselves in verse 10 of chapter 2. So he's moving and making this uh, uh, migration from the, pe- the priests, the spiritual leaders, down to the people. And today Malachi is going to specifically address four things. He's going to give us three examples of, of infidelity, infidelity against one another, infidelity against God, and infidelity against the spouse of our youth. And then he's going to challenge us and call us to repent and call us to hope and to grace. This is the, the, the point of the text. These are the themes of the text that he's going to challenge us with. And so what we're seeing here is the people of Israel were intended to be the set-apart people of God. His special possession the people that were set apart to display what a relationship with God looks like, and then to live that relationship out in the world. But when we come to the book of Malachi, and we come to this text today, what we see is that the people are not living this way. They're not honoring the vertical relationship with God. That relationship has been severed, and it has affected drastically their horizontal relationships together as the people of God, and then specifically in their marital relationships. They're following the immediacy of their own desires. They're abandoning their wives. They're committing adultery. They're intermarrying with unbelieving spouses, and they're joining in the worship of foreign gods. This is the people of Israel at this time. This is the context that we find ourselves in. A little bit more context. We've talked about the economic situation as Israel has come out of exile in Babylon, back to the land. They are returning to their homes that have been destroyed, their lands that have been destroyed. The temple is being or has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt in Nehemiah. And they are in the midst of of economic collapse. They have very little and they're they're oppressed um, underneath Persian rule. And what many believe is happening is that the men of Israel begin to take things into their own hands. They begin to take matters into their own hands, and they say, look at our circumstances, look at our situation. And what they began to do was to see the women, the foreign women of the other nations, as more desirable, 
and advantageous to reclaiming their land because land was with family. So if we marry or intermarry with these women, then we will have an opportunity to regain our land. And in that process, something that God forbid multiple times, not interracial marriage, but interworship marriage or internation marriage, in other words, don't intermarry with these people because they will lead you astray. We'll look at a text specifically that says that. They begin to worship foreign gods. And so they've abandoned God, they've abandoned their wives, they've abandoned their responsibility as the people and the nation that's intended to display this perfect, loving God and His relationship to us, and now it's affected drastically their outward relationships. And one of the worst things about all of this is that it's bringing the name of God into disrepair. It is demeaning the name of God. It is lowering the Lord of hosts into status with just any other God. And that God will not tolerate. And he's addressing that in these texts, in these verses that we're going to look at. So let's first look at their infidelity towards one another in verse 10. He says in verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi recognizes, he's, he's getting the people to recognize, his audience to recognize, were we not created by God as a special people? This one father and one God and the word created indicates what he's talking about. He's talking about the God of all creation. That word created is the same word, bara, that's in Genesis chapter 1. The infinite God of the universe created all things, spoke and everything came into existence. That same God created us, Israel, out of nothing. Just like he created creation, he created you and I. Out of nothing. We owe him everything. In fact, this is how Moses points out in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. He powerfully challenges them in their sin. Is this how you will repay God? Is not he your father who created you and made you and established you? It's the same language that Malachi is using. So Malachi, by these opening questions, is highlighting the fact that God created us out of nothing. Are we not the special chosen people of God? Were we not created out of nothing by the God of the universe? Does that not have some kind of bearing on who we are and how we're supposed to live? This is the question that Malachi is asking. And it leads to the thrust of his question in the last part of Malachi 2, 10. They are the family of faith created by God out of nothing, unified by God, sustained by God. And his question is, why then are we faithless towards one another? Why then are we faithless towards one another? That phrase, one another, can mean towards our brothers. So he's emphasizing we are a faith family. Why are we faithless towards one another, the family of faith, the nation, the chosen nation, the set-apart nation of God? This word, uh, faithless, is important. It's uh, the Hebrew word, bagad, and it can be translated as faithless or treacherous. And it's used five times in six verses here. Anytime a word is repeated that often in the text, it's supposed to highlight for us and draw our attention to the primary point of the text. It's used three times to address three different acts of infidelity. Infidelity towards one another, 
infidelity towards our spouses, and ultimately infidelity to God. And Malachi is pointing out that our outward infidelity is connected deeply and rooted in our vertical inward infidelity with God. That this relationship, when severed, when broken, will drastically and radically affect our outward relationships with each other. And this is what Malachi is drawing to their attention and highlighting. It means to deal treacherously, to act covertly, or to commit adultery. If we are the family of God, if we are the people of God, if we have been created out of nothing to, re- to, to display what it looks like to have a, a union, a perfect relationship with God, and to display that into the world, why are we not different from the world? Why is there no difference in our actions, attitudes, and habits? Why are we living just like everyone else? And this is where Malachi goes. He says, do you not understand that this profanes the covenant of our fathers, the covenant that, that the nation of Israel entered into with God? And that raises a question. How does faithlessness towards one another, how does that profane the covenant, the vertical relationship that we have with God? We've already kind of mentioned it and hinted at it. But God entered into a covenant. It, covenant means promise. When you read your New Testament, the word testament means promise. New Old Testament means promise. Old and New Testament, these are promises made and promises kept. The, the covenant is the God that entered into a covenant saying, I will be faithful to you regardless of circumstances. This is the covenant that they entered into. He established the nation of Israel to display this relationship that they have. They were intended to be holy and corporately worshiping the one true God. And the intent was that through them, a redeemer would be sent that the nations of the earth might be blessed. And so God has established this new nation, this nation of priests, this this kingdom of priests, this nation that's unified around one thing, worshiping the one true God. And Malachi is asking, if the chosen people of God are divisive, treacherous, adulterous, and irreconcilable, then what makes them any different than anybody else? If we're warring against one another... If we're abandoning one another, if we're living according to the pagans, if we're leaving our spouses and and casting them off, which is what the word means here in in the text, divorce, it just means to cast off. If if that's what we're doing, we're no different than anyone else. And here is the, the, the primary point Malachi is highlighting. That means our God is no different than anyone else, any other God. That brings him from Lord of hosts, we studied that word, infinite holy God to just one of the other gods. What difference has he made in your life if your life is not different as a result of this relationship? What makes their God, this is Malachi's question, what makes their God any different than the rest of the gods? What kind of God do they serve and what good is that God if there is no tangible difference in the way they live before him and worship him. This is exactly when we studied through the book of James, what we talked about when we studied through that book. That if there is a relationship with God, that our hearts are reconciled, our relationship is restored to him, then it changes our hearts and it leads to outward transformation of action. This is exactly what Jesus taught on, on in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. That, that our outward actions are a result of an inward transformation of heart. That all of life is an overflow from an intimate relationship with God. 
So this is important for us to see what Malachi is saying here. Malachi is making the point that their treachery against one another demeans and lowers the Lord of hosts. It brings his name low. You're, you're, you're demeaning his name. But Malachi's question leads them to the root cause of their treachery as well. The root cause of their treachery is first and foremost their treachery against God. Malachi is not simply asking, can't we all just get along? We hear that question a lot. Can't we all just get along? That's not what he's asking. He's asking a deeper question, a better question. Why can't we all just get along? Why is it that we constantly betray one another? Why is it that we constantly abandon our spouses? Why is it that we constantly lie to one another? Why is it that we constantly turn on each other? Why is it that we lie? Why is it that we disparage each other? Why is it that we accuse and hate? Why is it that we speak evil of one another? If we are one family under the one true God, why do we so easily do these things? Malachi is leading them to wrestle with the true root cause of why there's this external, outward brokenness in their relationships. The answer, according to Malachi, is rooted first in their vertical betrayal to God. That the relationship to God has been severed and broken, and it will naturally overflow and produce broken relationships horizontally. Malachi is replaying in the micro of this text the macro of Genesis chapter 3 the macro of the meta-narrative of the Bible. That Genesis chapter 3, there was an intimate relationship with God. It was broken in all life, all relationships, individual life was broken and fragmented. And that means these horizontal relationships. And now, as Psalm 2 says, we rage against one another. We lift up our, our thrones and our, our kingdoms and our power against one another. It's the only natural result. And that's where he goes with verse 11. Infidelity to God, verses 11 and 12. He says this in verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So I mentioned to you this word faithless and treacherous. It means to commit adultery. It means to act covertly. It's used five times in this text. It's used 38 other times in the Old Testament. 38 other times in the Old Testament. And every single time it's used about Israel and their treachery against God. So there's a point that Malachi is trying to make. And he's trying to link that point to all these other times they've been treacherous. They've been treacherous to God. Nearly every time it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to Israel's treachery against God. Listen to, to Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? Hosea 4, 1-2. This whole story of Hosea plays this out over and over again. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all the bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Malachi is pointing out that the people are intermarrying, he's going to say here in, in this verse 11, 
and 12. They're intermarrying. They're being faithless. They've acted treacherously, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. This, this word abomination is used a number of different times in the Old Testament, and it's used first about following the abominable practices of the pagan people of the land, of the nations around them. So Deuteronomy 18.9 says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There was a warning. As you enter the land, don't intermarry with them because you will follow their practices. And I do not want you to follow their practices. Uh, Their practices, what did they include? In Deuteronomy 18, it says that they sacrificed their children to their gods. They burned them on altars. It says they they worshipped and celebrated sorcery and witchcraft. It, It gives this long list of how they practice these abominations, everything anti-God, everything uh, not according to God's will and design. This is what the people are doing. Israel was supposed to be set apart from those practices. They were not supposed to engage in those same practices. They were not supposed to engage in abandoning their wives. They were not supposed to commit adultery. They were not supposed to worship these false gods. They were not supposed to sacrifice their children to these false gods. And this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. It's not God's intent that you abandon your wives and do these things, but he does offer a, an out in terms of divorce. And he says that it's not acceptable in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's not acceptable that you just simply leave your, abandon your wives like all of the people. You, you can't leave her without protection. You can't leave her without covering. You can't leave her without provision. So he requires them to issue a decree, a divorce there. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he points back to this. He actually points back to Genesis and the intended design for marriage, which was a one flesh union. And then they say, well, what about Moses? You know, Moses allowed divorce He's in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He says, because of the hardness of their hearts. That was not God's intended design. What's he saying? They are following after the patterns of the people, the abominable practices of the people. That was not what was intended. They were supposed to be set apart and distinct. But to allow, because of the hardness of their hearts, and to protect the women from this uncovering, Moses allowed a decree of divorce. Now, back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. What is happening here? Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. Israel is doing exactly the opposite of God's instruction. They are intermarrying with the people. They are acting just like the people around them. They are abandoning their spouses. They are committing adultery. And they're discarding their wives on a whim simply because they found someone else more desirous. And this is what Malachi is addressing, and he says, they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And this is an interesting phrase. They have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. What's the first thing we think of when we hear the word sanctuary? A building, a place, a sanctuary, where we worship, right? The temple, where they go to worship. But most scholars point out that this is not talking about a building, the sanctuary of a building or a worship space, or the sanctuary even of marriage, but the sanctuary of their hearts. They have profaned the sanctuary of their hearts. They have abandoned the worship of the one true God, and they have gone after foreign gods. And that's what this phrase, 
marrying the daughters of foreign gods actually means. Anytime that's used, what it's talking about is not simply intermarriage, but it's following the practices and habits and attitudes and actions of those people. And what did they do? They worshipped everything other than God. And so the people are following, Israel's following after this. This is, uh, let's look at Ezra chapter 9 verse 2. Ezra chapter 9 verse 2. Ezra returns, Ezra is confronting the people, and he's confronting the priest, very similar to Malachi. He says, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, that's a key phrase there, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. The Hebrew word or phrase for holy race is the same Hebrew word for sanctuary. He's talking about Israel. Israel, you have abandoned the sanctuary of your heart. You have given your heart that was intended to be devoted to God. You have given it to foreign gods. You've done this by the start by starting to follow after and intermarry with their their people. Despite being clearly forbidden on multiple occasions, Israel is following after and intermarrying with these foreign nations. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And here's the primary point. Because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. They will do this. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Malachi is clearly indicating the people have committed spiritual adultery and they have abandoned God. And because they have abandoned this vertical relationship that they have committed spiritual adultery, they've severed this relationship, they've cast off God, then they are, there's nothing to stop them from casting off their relationships and their horizontal relationships horizontally. This phrase, one commentator says, the married uh, married the daughter of a foreign god, implied bearing the character of a deity whose whole ethos was diametrically opposed to the righteousness of Israel's God. And since a married couple must come to a common understanding in order to live happily together, one or other partner had to compromise on matters of worship. And it was proven time and again, Israel always was the nation that compromised, was always the people that compromised. What, what's happening here in this text? In verse 11, what he's saying, Judah has been faithless. They've acted treachery, treacherously. An abomination has been committed. They have done exactly what was forbidden. They have intermarried with these other nations who worship foreign gods. And they've done this in Israel and Jer Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of their hearts. They've given their hearts in worship to the other gods, which he loves their hearts which he loves and has married the daughter of foreign gods which leads malachi to cry out may this not be so verse 12 may the lord cut off from the tents of jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the lord of hosts malachi this is his prayer but this is also the logical conclusion of, of rebelling against god he's praying may it not be so may May, may you not com continue to demean the Lord of hosts. May you not continue to turn from Him and worship these false gods. May you not continue to give your hearts over to Him because it will influence and affect your children. It will influence and affect 
the nation after you. And the logical conclusion of continuing to rebel against him and worship at foreign gods is that your children will begin to worship them and there will no longer be people who worship the one true God. This is what Malachi is trying to address. Do you not see that your relationship to God is severed? Do you not see that it's severing and hindering the relationship to others? And if you continue in that pattern, it's also going to be passed down to the next generation. Malachi is challenging them and us to recognize clearly the importance of spiritual leadership. He's already done that in previous passages, but he's doing it again in this passage. That your influence, your spiritual life, the maturity, your, your spiritual growth, the inward life, it, it, it does and it will affect your outward life. And the first people it affects are your children, those that are watching us. What we worship, they will follow. What we worship, they will pick up. What we abandon, they will follow. Our practice habits and, and attitudes, they will pick up and they will adopt. And so he's first addressing that, but he's also teaching us something else that we don't ease into physical adultery and emotional infidelity without first crossing the line of spiritual adultery and spiritual infidelity. You don't ease into physical adultery. It doesn't just, don't just happen without first rejecting the commands of God. They were clearly instructed multiple times, do not intermarry. They will lead you astray. The fact that they're doing it in this text says what they think about God and his commands. Don't care. And that's exactly what happens, and you have to get to, and the place you come to before you enter into physical adultery is to reject God spiritually and say, I don't care. I'm not, I don't really care what you have to say. I care about your commands. You know, I know what the word says about this, but I it don't care. It doesn't apply to me. You reject God long before you reject your spouse and enter into adultery and infidelity. So what's needed is the writing of their relationship this way, vertically. Right orientation this way will affect the relationships horizontally. Said another way, if marriage or family or life or job or, or whatever else is in shambles, the answer is not fixing it, trying harder, doing more, trying to squeeze out of it more solutions. The answer is first repenting. And confessing and acknowledging, I've broken this, or it's broken, or I've, I can't fix this. And acknowledging God, but you can, you are ultimate, you are supreme. And, and my, my vertical relationship drastically affects my horizontal relationship. I see it in Genesis chapter 3. I see how all of life was broken because we broke this relationship to you. I see it played out again in Malachi. It's played out over and over again in Jeremiah. It's played out over and over again in Hosea. It's throughout the Bible that as we reject God and, and, and sever this relationship, it will affect our horizontal relationships. C.S. Lewis says this a different way. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. And that's exactly contrary to how we live our lives. We look horizontally to squeeze out of anyone and everything our value and meaning, and we crush them in the process. 
we look horizontally. We try to fix and solve everything horizontally before we first prioritize God and our relationship with Him. Here's another way of thinking about this, and this is what's happening in this text. We've talked about the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? The infinite God of the universe. If you will raise your fist to Him and say, I don't care what you think, and reject that covenant, then what makes you believe you will stay true to any other covenant horizontally? If we'll reject the God of the universe, if we'll betray Him, if we'll act treacherously towards Him, what on earth makes you think that I'll be honest to you? I'll be fair with you. I won't act treacherously or betray you. That's why this is so important. If you break, break the covenant with the Lord of hosts, then you will naturally break the covenant with each other. And this is what Malachi leads to next. He talks about infidelity to spouse, verses 13 to 14. He says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Verse 14, but you say, why does, he not do, why does he not receive our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's believed that one of the things that's happening here is that they have abandoned God, they've abandoned their relationships horizontally, They've betrayed one another, and they're turning on one another. They're abandoning their, their, their spouses. They're going and committing adultery and intermarrying with the daughters of foreign gods. They're beginning to worship those foreign gods. And then they're coming home, and they're divorcing their wives. And they're just casting them off. They found a better way. They found someone who's more advantageous to get them land and people and stuff. And as they come home, what they're doing is bringing the worship, the practices of those wor- the worship of those foreign gods into the temple and the worship of God. And, and so what they're doing is bringing these outward, extreme outward acts of emotion, which were part of the worship of these foreign gods, and they're bringing that into play to worship God. Imagine how treacherous this is. Do you follow that logic? God, I don't care what you think. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go marry and and intermarry these other people that you've told me not to because that's a command. I don't care. I'm going to go over here and do this. I'm going to start worshiping their gods, and then I'm going to come home. I'm going to discard my wife, and I'm going to reenter the temple, and I'm going to say, hey, God, here I am. Will you bless me? How absurd. How unbelievable with such blatant sin. And that's Malachi's point here in verses 13 and 14. They're weeping and wailing would not achieve anything, will not achieve anything because they blatantly disregard the sin in their lives. They ask, why won't he answer us? They've completely ignored the sin, blatant sin in their lives. And the question is, that's in response, do you not know their sin in your midst? Do you not recognize what you've done? And he says, the Lord of hosts, the infinite God of the universe, was there at your marriage covenant, nodding in agreement, acknowledging, affirming, validating your marriage covenant. And you have just said, I don't care, and then you've walked away. To reject your bride is to reject his affirmation 
to reject your marriage covenant is to reject him because he's affirmed and confirmed it. Why do you think then that you can discard her, betray her, betray him, and then offer these, offer these empty tears on the altar and receive blessing? There's sin in your midst. Instead, you need to repent. You need to confess. You need to acknowledge the sin that you've committed against your spouse, but ultimately against God. You need to return and come home. This is uh, amazing. An amazing passage. We get to verse 15 and 16, and we see that there is a call to repentance and hope and grace. But it's not evident, not completely evident on the surface. It's not completely clear with, with just one first reading. Verses 15 and 16 are said to be some of the most difficult verses to translate in the Hebrew. They're some of the most difficult passages to understand exactly what's going on here. And so we have to use good biblical interpretation, and we have to allow the thrust of the passage, 10 to 16, the thrust of the chapter, the thrust of the book, and the thrust of the meta narrative of the Bible, and to, to understand this, the thrust of the minor prophets, and what was their message over and over again. Repent, for judgment is coming. Repent and come home. Repent. Confess your sin to a loving and faithful God. And He will receive you back. He is gracious. And He is kind. And that's what's going on here in these, these verses. The thrust of the remaining verses and the intent of this passage was to call Israel to repentance. To stop living like the rest of the world. Stop living like the nations around you. Stop acting like them. You were intended to be set apart you are a priority nation, a special possession. You are a nation of kings, a, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. You are a special set-apart nation displaying for the world what it looks like to have a relationship with God and then that affecting your relationships outwardly. You were supposed to be different, but you're not. So repent. Confess and return home. Return to me. Israel has re been repeatedly unfaithful to their spouses and to their God. And this is what's remarkable, and this is where we begin to see grace in these verses. Yet they do not receive what they deserve. They've been unfaithful to God, and yet He does not say, I'm done with you. He does not issue them a decree of divorce and say, see ya. Instead, he remains faithful, and he calls them home. It's, this passage is so eerily similar to Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. It, it's unbelievable. As you study, if you study Je Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3, it says that in 13, 2, 13, my people have committed two sins. They have turned from me, the infinite holy God, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns. Cisterns were the things that held water in this day, and they're broken. So in other words, they're, sh they're, they're pursuing after false idols, and there's a hole in the bottom. It just keeps running out. It will never satisfy them. 
There's two things that Israel has done. They have turned from me and they've hewn out for themselves broken cisterns. What's happening in Malachi? You've been unfaithful to me and it has resulted in unfaithfulness to your spouse and chasing after foreign gods. And it's never going to satisfy. And in chapter 3, verse 12 to 13 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3, 12 to 13, God says, Return faithless, there's the word again, Israel declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Israel, if you continue down this path, Malachi is saying, you will get the logical end of that. You'll get what you're pursuing, which is separation from God. And God in this passage is saying, that is not what I desire. Repent and come home. Don't continue down this path. Instead, remain faithful. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi is beginning to teach them and he's pointing them back to something. He uses almost identical language to Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 where God introduces marriage. It's not a man-made thing. It is a God-orchestrated and designed and ordained institution. And in in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, God explains and gives marriage and he says that the man and the woman will leave their families and cleave to one another. They will bind themselves permanently in one flesh union to one another and there's a purpose to this an intention to this what did the one God hope to produce from this one flesh union well first there's a one flesh union that's intended to display the one flesh union the intimacy between us and God and marriage is intended to display that but secondly he gives in the text his desire is one flesh union but it's also godly offspring Think about what is being said here. What did the one God hope to produce from the one flesh union? The same thing he hoped to produce in establishing the nation of Israel. A people set apart unto him, giving him wholehearted worship to display to the nations what it's like to be in relationship to him. I've shared this quote with you before, but Christopher Ashe is an author and he's written a book, Marriage in the Service of God. And he says, how does having children serve God? The answer is that it may or may not serve God. It depends on the children. He says, it's not enough simply to bring new human beings into the world. It's also necessary for them to grow into a relationship of glad response to the call of God. What's Malachi saying? God established this one flesh union in order to replicate people who worship God. And you are derailing that one flesh union and derailing God's redemptive plan in this process. As we've already said, it cannot be thwarted, but they are standing as an obstacle to it. They are displaying to the world, he doesn't matter, they're demeaning his name, they're lowering his name, and they're worshiping these other gods saying, these are what's important. And they're following the practices of the people around them. And God is calling them to repent. The intent in establishing the nation of Israel the intent in God-worshipping Israelite men marrying God-worshipping Israelite women 
was to produce God-worshiping offspring so that the nations might see and hear and come to know and worship the one true God. If you continue down this road of abandoning your marriages and abandoning your wives and, and, and abandoning this, this God-ordained institution that he has established, you are and will derail God's intended purposes for your life to display him in the world, to display his faithfulness and perpetuate his name. So Malachi pleads with him, guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. It mean, This phrase, in your spirit, means to have sound judgment. Be of sound judgment. Do you not understand that who you are? Do you not understand what I've called you to be? Do you not understand what I've established you for? Be of sound mind. Guard yourselves and let none of you be faithless, faithless or treacherous to the wife of your youth. Stop chasing your emotions. Stop chasing your idols. Stand firm. Remain true to God, to his purpose for marriage and the marriage covenant. And then we get to verse 16. An extremely, as you be completely honest, an extremely difficult passage to translate. There's actually four different ways you can translate this, three of which are very similar. And we'll throw all four up here. The first three, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. The second one, translation similar, the man who hates his wife and divorces her covers his garment with violence. The third, the man who despises his wife and divorces her covers his garment with violence. You can see that all three of those really are the same thing. They're just variations of this word hate. And then we get to the fourth way, which is another way of translating this verse, and it says, for I hate, it's the Lord speaking now, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So which is it? All of the above. I tend to lean towards the first three, which is really one way of translating it. The man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, covers his garment with violence. And I'll show you why in just a second. And I don't think that does injustice to the last one, which is, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. At the end of the day, what's the thrust of the text? What's the point that he's, he's trying to call them back from acting like the people around them? He's calling them to repent. And he's telling them and teaching them that the intended design of marriage was to display this infinite or intimate personal relationship with that you have with God, and it's supposed to display something in the world, and it's supposed to affect your heart, and it's supposed to lead to transformation in the world. So for God, wh wh whether we translate it as, I hate divorce, God stands opposed to this casting off, which is what the word divorce means, casting off or uncovering, or the man who casts off. Both are saying, stop being like everybody else. Stop being like the people around you. And here's why I think that the thrust of the verse is maybe better translated for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, covers her with his garment. So the word divorce in the Hebrew means to despise, cast off, send away. It can also mean to uncover. And then what he says after this, the man who, if you take that meaning of uncover, the man who uncovers his covenant marriage with his spouse the man who uncovers, then covers with injustice. This idea of covering is not new language to 
to Hebrews. It's not new language to Israel. It might be to us, but it's not to them. And they would have caught the meaning and the implication of this. What's interesting is that when we look back through the Old Testament, this idea of being covered has to do with being covered in covenant marriage. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, God's using the same phrase, and he says, uh, a phrase that they would be familiar with, with, God himself says of Israel, that when he saw them, he spread the corner of his garment over them and covered them and entered into a covenant with them. So to cover over, to put a covering on or cloak over is an indication of covenant marriage. I'm entering into a covenant with you. When he saw Israel, when he established Israel, he was entering into a covenant with them, covering them. What's he covering them with? His protection, his provision, his relationship. And it's intended to display something to the world. We just studied Ruth. We didn't just study it. We studied it in the past. And when we studied Ruth, we we came across verse 9 of chapter 3. And what does Ruth say to Boaz when she goes into the room in the threshing floor? She says to Boaz, cover me. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's using the same language. Cover me with your cloak. In other words, protect me, invite me into covenant marriage with you. Cover me. There is an intentional wordplay happening in verse 16. And here it is. The man who uncovers his wife in terms of protection and provision covers himself in injustice. The man who cast off, if we take the the divorce and meaning cast off, meaning just to throw away to the trash heap, just to get rid of as insignificant and worthless, which is exactly what the people are doing here. The man who casts off, uncovers his wife, covers himself with grave injustice. First, it's an injustice to the woman. He is removing his protection and provision, his refuge. She no longer has refuge or covering. She's now weak and powerless in their society and subject to abuse. And for what? For a whim? For the lust of the flesh? Because another woman could provide him some greater advantage in society or culture? God says this is an abomination. It's unacceptable. And what he says is, what you think is secret is actually in display for the world to see. It's like blood on a garment. It's like violence on a garment, a blood-soaked garment. It's displayed to the rest of the world. You're uncovering her, and you think you're doing it in secret. You're covering yourself with injustice, and everyone can see it. It's not right. No one with sound judgment, backing up to verse 15, would do this. But it's secondly an injustice to the covenant faithful God. How is it? and injustice to a covenant faithful God because his covenant is on display in their marriage covenant. His promise of faithfulness is on display in their marriage covenant. When we say I do at the altar, we say I do. We're saying I promise to be remain faithful and true to you and to remain standing hand in hand, intimate and close to you just like we are despite circumstances, no matter what. I promise to be here in the future just like we are here, no matter what happens between now and then. That's what we're promising on the altar before God, and the Lord is a witness of that. And that intimacy and that commitment and that promise is intended to display something. The God of the universe who entered into a covenant with man and said, I will be faithful no matter what. 
And when you fracture that, you're fracturing that image. You're breaking that. His covenant faithfulness is on display in their marriage covenant. Their betrayal of one another radically undermines the picture of his covenant faithfulness. And it gets to the heart of this text. Our unfaithfulness towards God, which is reflected in our unfaithfulness towards kin and spouse, undermines the display of God's covenant faithfulness in the world. And what's the, the, the ending command? It's just like verse 15, except there's one part left out. In verse 15, it says, So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. In verse 16, it says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth, discarding her, uncovering her with protection, not providing for her. And then in verse 16, don't be faithless, don't be treacherous. There's a danger if we read this text without an understanding of Jesus, without an understanding of the New Testament, without an understanding of the gospel. If we read this, what we hear is white knuckle, sheer determinism, pull myself up by my bootstraps, just remain faithful. Just stand firm and be faithful. But the good news is we have the New Testament. The good news is we have the gospel. And what we realize as a result of the meta narrative of the Bible is that there is no one who has been faithful. There is no one who is righteous. We have all sinned and gone astray like sheep have gone astray. We have all betrayed God. We are all tempted by sin and we all fall into sin. We are all faithless. We are all treacherous to God. There is no one who is perfect or righteous or perfectly faithful. Neil, I thought you said that this ending was supposed to lead us to hope and grace. Where's the hope and grace in that? I I want to make sure before we jump into where I believe hope and grace is in this text, you understand, I think Malachi is intending for us to squirm. I think he's intending for us to feel the weight of this text. To recognize the patterns of our lives, the attitudes, the habits of our lives, and how similar they are to the people that don't worship God. And he's calling us to repent. He's calling us to submit to Jesus. So where is the awe in this passage? Where is the hope in this passage? Where is the grace in this passage? First, God knows what it's like to be trapped in a terrible marriage. God knows what it's like to be in a marriage with someone who has betrayed him. Someone who desires to leave him. Someone who's committed adultery against him. God knows what it's like to be married to someone who wants out. God knows what it's like to give himself wholly and completely and yet have his heart trampled on. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, but they despised him. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Remember the 30 pieces of silver? Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. Remember the sleeping disciples? Jesus knows what it's like to experience the searing pain of being forsaken. Remember the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is an immense amount of hope and, and encouragement in this that 
God understands for those of us that are in this room who've been betrayed, who have experienced this, He knows what it's like. He can empathize. He can identify. He's been there. Why? Because every single one of us have betrayed Him. Every single one of us is born in sin. By nature, children of wrath, we all lifted our fist against God and said, I make a better ruler, I make a better king. We dethrone Him and enthrone ourselves. And every day we're tempted by sin. So where's the second part of awe and hope and grace in this text? God should have thrown in the towel. God should have walked away. God should have said, I don't, I don't want you anymore. God should have rejected us, but He didn't. He remained. He remained faithful. Oh, what grace. He instead remained true to His covenant and sent us His true and better bridegroom. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, he sent us his true and better bridegroom to cover us with the garments of salvation, to cover us with the robe of righteousness, to lay down his life so that we could be rescued from death, to, cast, to be cast off. He was cast off so that we could be brought in, to be forsaken that we might not be for, forgotten to be sin so that we might become righteous, to assure us of the hope of heaven that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you hear the grace? He should have crushed them. He should have walked out. He should have said, I'm done with this marriage. But instead, he calls them home. Come home. Come home. Return to me. Repent. Do you know this faithful God? Have you experienced this astounding and amazing grace? The faithfulness of God in Jesus. Have you come clean before Him? Have you recognized and confessed your sins before Him and believed the good news that He is close to the brokenhearted and He also came to rescue the foulest of hearts? Yours and mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a difficult passage. Difficult on so many levels. Difficult technically, but certainly difficult personally. We've all been touched by betrayal. We've all been touched by adultery. We've all been touched by divorce. Lord, will you help us see? Holy Spirit, will you illuminate this text? Will you help us meditate on this text this week? I pray that your word has been spoken. You've pierced our hearts. Where conviction is needed, you've brought conviction. Where humbling is needed, you've brought humility. And where hope is needed, you've brought hope. Lord, this is a difficult text. And I'm so thankful for a church that doesn't just skip over texts that are difficult, but we go through them, we understand them, and we see what you're calling us to. And there may be some attitudes, actions, and habits that need to change in this room. Help us understand what those are. And help us repent and confess and and receive your mercy and grace. Lord, and then there are some, some in this room who've been betrayed. May we find hope 
in the God who we betrayed. May we recognize the forgiveness that you gave us, the grace that you showed us. And for the betrayer, Lord, I pray that you would humble, but I pray that you would show them the the gospel as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.